0: Today's program is brought to you by MoFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Listening to eat your words and heritage radio network i'm your host kathy Irway. so it's middle of summer actually it's towards the end but uh you might be looking at uh trees and shrubbery around your area and seeing maybe a berry a blackberry or something like that and think can i eat that what should i do can i and uh, you know other um, sort of herbs maybe some oniony grasses um but actually, uh, much of this is sort of in vogue right now. So wild foods have been popularized by the Noma chef um, over in uh, Copenhagen. And uh, it's kind of blowing up in the last, last few years. My guest today is actually a professional uh, forager, and he is... Um, His name is Pascal Baudard. He is a wild foods instructor, a self-styled culinary alchemist based in Los Angeles. He's been featured in numerous TV shows and publications, and he was also named in 2014 one of the 25 most influential Tastemakers in LA, but by, by Los Angeles Magazine. So Pascal has written a cookbook called *The New Wild Crafted Cuisine*, exploring the exotic gastro- gastronomy of local terroir. And I'm so in- uh, excited to be joined by him on the line. How are you, Pascal?
1: Bonjour! <laughs> I'm doing good!
0: <laughs> Excellent! Um, thanks so much for this gorgeous book and uh, it's a, it's a really eye-opening because uh, I've taken some foraging tours, I've made some salad using dandelion greens, but you have <laughs> a crazy arsenal of techniques. And uh, just know-how, um, and just to kind of throw out some some hits out there, you, you've made um, you've taken various barks to make smoked vinegars. Um, yep. uh, you know, you've taken you've created insect sugar to brew primitive beers. I'm talking like next 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 level uh, <laughs> wild food <laughs> cooking. So, I, actually, if I may start out, um, Pascal, I got to admit something. I was Looking up uh, in the news, because, you know, this is summer, maybe a lot of people are foraging or just trying in the first, you know, for the first time to pick something in the wild. Um, I was looking around for some reports of somebody dying from like a mushroom that they didn't know was poisonous or something like that. And lo and behold, I really couldn't find anything. Like I was trying to be like a devil's advocate, but this doesn't seem to be something that happens. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen that? You know,
1: you know it's interesting at at this time of the year uh what you will be looking for is actually I mean in southern California is actually seeds. Mhm. And Seeds are completely everywhere, and people have no idea. They look at the environment and say, "My God, this is so dry. There is nothing to pick up," and they don't realize they're surrounded by gourmet seeds.
0: Wow, gourmet seeds! Uh, what would they look like? Because uh, you've made pickled acorns. I didn't know that was something I could eat. Uh, what are some of the? Uh, what are the other seeds we could be eating?
1: Well, a good example would be uh, right now. Uh, you know, in in near Los Angeles, we have tons and tons and tons of wild mustard.
0: Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And
1: it's actually a very invasive plant. And uh, we probably have like seven or eight different types of mustard. And the ranch, the flavor ranch, will go anywhere between broccoli to wasabi.
0: Oh, yeah. So,
1: so okay. this time of year, I actually collect a lot of black mustard seeds, and I use them to make gourmet dish mustard, for example.
0: Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Another seed that you've um, provided a recipe for here is something that is very trendy right now. It's chia seeds. And yes. uh, they can be quite expensive, but apparently you can find them in the wild, which I did not know.
1: <laughs> yes, actually the, the seeds that you buy at the store are not the native seeds. Uh, the native seeds on, in our area, uh, I have to pick them up in the desert. Uh, and those are the golden chia seeds. Mm. So. It's a similar flavor, but the seed pods are much smaller. Yeah. And the color the color of the seeds are different, so it's much more work to actually collect.
0: How, yeah, I would imagine. How exactly do you collect all these tiny little seeds without spilling them? And
1: <laughs> Well, I mean, some, for example, mustard is pretty easy. It's everywhere. Okay. So I basically grab the seed pods and I mm-hmm. put them into a, a plastic bag. So it mm-hmm. doesn't take me a long time. And then I come home and then I basically just... Uh, uh, trash the bag like bang on it with a stick or walk on it and i open all the seed pods and they fall at the bottom of the bag mm-hmm. and then I, I create a little hole at the bottom of the bag and collect all my seeds there's still some shaft there and then i just blow on the shaft the shaft blows away because the seeds are um how to say more heavy and then there you go I, I can collect two or three cups of mustard in one morning
0: wow so that sounds kind of fun you kind of like shake them out and separate the seeds and uh, go from there cool um okay another thing that i've seen a lot of people eating that i didn't know before you could eat um is pine needles and that's everywhere and it has a wonderful fragrance but uh what can we do with that (laughs) what would you suggest the
1: the pine uh, the, the pine needles uh it really depends on what pine. all pines are edible but you're gonna have all kind of different flavors yeah, uh, I, I like to use uh, um, white, white pine, which is really has some, a little bit of orange flavor to the needle. Uh, I also like to use white fir, and I also like to use pinion pine needles, which taste a bit like tangerine. Wow. And I use them uh, to uh, make soda. Uh, I don't know if you know. It's not in my book. It's in new yes. discovery, but uh, the unripe pine cones are actually loaded with wild yeast.
0: With wild yeast, okay.
1: Yes, so you can so, just put that in sugar water with a pine cone and some branches, and you can make the most incredible uh, pine soda.
0: Wow, this, this is this sounds sounds...
1: like lemony, you know, orangey, tangerine flavor. It's very interesting flavors.
0: It is so the pine needle, white fir, and lemon soda. It sounds very easy too. So I'm really attracted to this this recipe. Um, and uh, I, I understand that pine needles are packed with vitamin C, so... That's correct. Yeah, so wasn't it an earlier way of sort of uh, preventing from scurvy, too, just grab some some uh, leaves and or pine needles and kind of munch on them? Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, I remember seeing yeah, that. And,
1: then, and the survivalists actually make a tea out of it, and then, uh, the tea actually tastes like lemon type of thing.
0: It sounds wonderful. Why aren't we doing this more often? <laughs> <laughs> you know,
1: people forgot. People okay. don't don't know anymore. Yeah, people have been, you know, going to the market. It takes one generation to lose everything. Like my grandmother still knew a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And she used to go foraging and go into the garden. And then my mom uh, kind of decided, you know, stopped doing that and went to the store. Mm-hmm. And everything got lost, so it takes one generation, and all this knowledge is gone. Mm-hmm. People have no idea of what is in their surrounding like no it's, it, it's, it's probably four hundred and fifty different ingredients that I can collect in the wild
0: Wow and, that's uh, more
1: than, yeah
0: oh go, go ahead. ahead that's more
1: it that, 's more than the Santa Monica market, for example
0: it 's true, and it 's probably um healthier in a lot of ways too. Um, yes. So, Pascal, tell me a little bit about how you came into foraging and uh, how you learned it and, and, you know, who taught you? Um,
1: your mother? A lot of people mm-hmm. told me. So, I basically grew up in Belgium in a tiny little town of maybe like 3,000 people, if that. Mm-hmm. So, nothing to do.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, I grew up kind of like in the 19th century in a small farm, you know, uh and we had a garden we had rabbits we had uh how to say uh uh chicken and i spent most of my time in you know basically just wandering the woods as a kid and you know i started learning that way uh, how to collect hazelnuts walnuts you know how to collect sting nettles and uh, make food out of it so it was normal for me and yeah, uh the elders at the time you know still knew all this good food that you know the nature was not looked at something weird or something that you cannot touch mm-hmm. nature was looked at something that you can work with and also uh, as a source of food you know and how to do it the proper way right. and, and then in the 90s i was at this you know i travel all over the world and then late 90s i was actually living in san california and I became interested to take a look again at, you know, local wild food. And I probably did four hundred classes with all kinds of people from survivalists to native people to botanists, anybody who could teach you. And I became obsessed with really looking at the, the flavor not only of Southern California, but looking at the true the true flavor of an environment, be it in Vermont or be it in San California or Oregon. it doesn't matter. You basically have a, a terroir mm-hmm. with very specific flavor that I really pretty much untouched by people.
0: Uh, when we think of terroir, we often think of the commercialized goods from that particular area. area. So, if uh, you know, if say, you know, here in Brooklyn, I'm I'm kind of close to this place that makes smoked fish. So that's, you know, but it's not really, um, you know, it's a manufacturer. It's not something found in the wild. Although we're not too far from the ocean. But anyway, you get my point. Um, you know, we don't tem- tend to think of the things that are actually part of that natural wild environment as as our terroir so
1: uh right but it's so like for example i was in uh, i went to do a trip in Vermont in june and um you know as an example of cooking with a terroir we actually went to the forest and then we pick up uh, white birch uh, branches and leaves we pick up wild our roots uh pick up, we made wild yeast with uh uh some of the uh, uh, some of the flowers that we found, and uh, took some maple syrup, and we actually make a primitive beer, and then we cook some rabbit, and the rabbit actually came from the environment too. Mm-hmm. So it was basically a rabbit cooking uh, primitive beer made with its own forest. Mm-hmm. And you the, can out- go, yeah. Go it doesn't
0: it. get any more local than that. You know, it's something I, that I is know. that this is the home for these ingredients. Um, so, what is it like when you go back to your um, town in in Belgium? Are they still are there still elders? Are there still folks who have picked up these um, like you have picked up these skills? That are still forging?
1: Not, not, really. not oh, no. really. I don't go there very often, to be okay. honest. I go there every 10 years to say hi. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and this year I'm overdue. I have to go and uh-huh. say hi to my dad. Uh, but no, not, not really. It's really, oh, dear. Uh, uh, you know, it's like here in America, people go to the market at this point. So it's really pretty much lost. Oh, dear. Uh, from a culinary perspective. Um, well, you know, but I think it's, it's getting back slowly, thanks to, as you were saying, you know, restaurants like Noma and mm-hmm. places like that. I mean, in Denmark, it definitely came back. You know, and they really reinvented their own cuisine by reinterpreting and looking at you know what nature was providing to them.
0: Hmm. And I think that that's interesting because these are places where okay, let's. It's not exactly a tropical environment. we don't think of it as being particularly lush in uh you know wild fruits vegetables and herbs, and you name it, but it's actually vast, so that only goes to say how how vast every place is um in terms yes. of wild foods um
1: I have no idea but i mean this, you know i mean the the book is really four hundred and thirty pages or yes. 37 pages of uh, of ideas of what you can do with wild food. And it's not just about Southern California, I mean we're talking about making spices, mm-hmm. wines, beer, making your own vinegar using fruit flies, and <laughs> all kind of crazy ideas, <laughs> but it's really going deep into the the true flavor of an environment.
0: Yes, I want to talk a lot more about some of those crazy ideas, um, but we're going to cut to a quick little musical interlude and we'll be right back, Chad sure And this is "Walking Like a Cowboy" by Tax Star. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Peter Kim, the executive director of MoFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. We're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network, and we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. We just opened MoFad Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing flavor, making it and faking it. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami. And the Willy Wonka-inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MoFad Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at mofad.org. We're back. This is Eat Your Words, and we're talking with Pascal Baudard, the author of The New Wild Crafted Cuisine, Exploring the Exotic gastro- Gastronomy of Local Terroir. Um, so, Pascal, we were just talking about um, how this is sort of like a lost art, learning how to forage. And uh, I'm curious if you have any tips, because this is a wonderful resource. This book, you know, as you mentioned, has hundreds of recipes and ideas um, for what to do once you grab... Things like uh, you know pine needles, as we were discussing, um, things you can easily find, and and even more advanced things that you can you know look around for a little bit more. Um, so this is invaluable. So thank you so much for sharing some of these folksy uh, knowledge uh, that you've learned. But I'm I'm curious what you would say to somebody who's just starting out and maybe um, a little bit uh, intimidated by the wild, uh, you know. How should they approach? Uh, Should they take, you know, one thing at a time? Should it focus on, say, one kind of mushroom and go for that? Or just kind of keep your eyes open and look all around you and see what might be an edible green?
1: Okay, so the best advice I can give to people is... uh, Somebody local who can teach you—it's probably the best advice I can give you. It's really hard to study from books. Uh, you know, you basically need uh, somebody who can teach you. I mean, look, plants—you know—the way I teach people is—you know—you can smell the plants. You have to take a look at them, look at the details. You know, how do they feel? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is the, how to what is the best environment for flavors? So there's a lot of things that you can teach people. Uh, and and really the best way is it's really uh, a knowledge that's being given down by people to other people. Mm-hmm. It's really, at one point you can become independent, but it takes a yeah. while. So if you knew, just find, there tons of local people. Just Google it, you know, find, you know, instructor, wild food instructor, and then, you know, I know in Brooklyn, I think you have like three or four people teaching.
0: Yeah, on that there. note, I might give a yeah. shout-out to wild man Steve Brill, who is a long-time foraging expert here uh, for Central Park, Prospect Park, and all sorts of places. So, yeah, yes. There's Mary
1: Maryville Jean is another one. You know, there's a bunch of people, uh, Lida, Meredith, is yes. another one, too.
0: Yes, we've she had There's a bunch the of
1: people. And uh, uh, the next thing you can also teach as an instructor is also sustainability, because you know, it's not just about taking, taking, but also it's about, you know, learn to live with the environment and also exchange with the environment. So my philosophy is to actually plant more than I will ever take, for
0: example. Wow, yeah. that's That makes absolutely all the sense in the world. Um, and I love the idea of, like, this not being something you can really just study but from books. You need to learn hands-on from somebody yeah. who knows. And, I, you know, the idea of... Um, sharing that knowledge once you do become an expert i think is really important um because not everyone's going to take it on so you got to kind of plant your seed wide and far so to speak with uh sharing this uh you know something that could easily get lost through the years um this book is obviously a tremendous effort on that behalf um so what is it? Um, I mean, I'm intrigued by um, you know the differences you found in the U.S. between uh, where you grew up and wh- where you're from. Uh, what what inspired you about um, California and its terroir?
1: Well, originally it was from a survival perspective. So 1999, we're talking what 2K. Okay. So the end of the world okay. was coming. <laughs> 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 but I say to I started to think again in terms of like well you know what would happen and you know how to find food and I did a lot of class with survivalists and uh, I found out that there was a bunch of incredible flavor but nobody was really doing anything with it oh. and that's and that's why I became obsessed I'm going like gosh so many flavors so many good stuff but you know this is We're gourmet sitting food on it. yeah and, and nobody was doing gourmet food with it so I started to really investigate what could be done with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, uh, I live in Los Angeles, so I would say like 90 to 95% of what we forage is actually non-native.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: came from Europe. Interesting. So I'm, I'm completely at ease in the environment because it's practically, practically the same stuff that I find in uh, Belgium.
0: Ah. Yeah. So, so a lot of similarities then um yeah well that's good um
1: same, same thing in new york by the way you probably there is so many people that came from all kinds of different countries guess right. what you got the seeds that came with them
0: yeah i i well we don't have all that all that you know goodness that california typically has but um you know for instance i'm looking at uh your all your recipes for olives which i'm very jealous about <laughs> right so olives are all over southern california and uh you know, they just fall off the trees, typically. Um,
1: yeah, but they're non-native, for example. They're mm-hmm. walking from Italy.
0: Right, right.
1: You know, we have figs. We have figs everywhere. It's also non-native. So we have a tremendous amount of stuff. But yeah, it's all... But it species came from Mediterranean area.
0: You know what's one thing that is in my area? So I'm from New York, New Jersey. And... Yeah. Um, yeah. I've always seen mulberries just fall all over the place. And, you know, those red, or not red, it's like blackish blue, you know, they get stomped on and just smush, and then they start to smell fermented as they decay on the pavement (laughs) all over the place. That's perfectly good berries, isn't it?
1: Yes, you can actually do mulberry wine, you can Mm -hmm. make mulberry vinegar, you can make mulberry sauce, I mean, the amount of stuff you can do is unbelievable
0: yeah it is really unbelievable that we're taught not to eat that that that's what I recall <laughs> growing up
1: I know it's so funny
0: <laughs> okay so so you know a lot of this has to do with education you know should we just you know kind of keep our eyes open and uh, recognize wild plants for what they are, and I love that that message that you share um, tremendously. You know,
1: okay. Mm-hmm. To be honest, 80% of what you see in the world can be used for culinary use. Mm-hmm. Maybe only 5% will kill you If that. I so love- you're talking like 80%. Yeah.
0: Right, right. I mean, when, when you say it, and this book makes so obvious, it... We feel so I just feel so dumb. But you know, if I go and talk to somebody like my coworker or something like that, they're going to think I'm crazy if I suggest eating something. So it's just we have a little bit of a bridge to 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 cross, but it's we're getting yeah. there hopefully. Um, you know,
1: that, that, that's what I do in my class. We actually go around and then I, get, I make a little bit of food at the end so people actually yeah. can eat. And this, then you see this light going in their head going like, oh, my God, this is good. This is gourmet food. Yeah,
0: Right, right. Um, for instance, I love the simplicity of your rosin baked potatoes recipe. And um, so you take the what, – what exactly is rosin? Could you ex- help uh, explain what –
1: Rosin. So Um, rosin is actually clarified pine resin. Yes. And in the old days, uh, and it was mostly on the East Coast, actually, uh, in some location they would actually uh, boil or basically produce turpentine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the way you produce turpentine is by removing turpentine from resin through boiling and, and all kind of different stuff. And they will take whatever was left after the process, which is pretty much resin that has been boiled over, mm-hmm. and which is now called rosin, so it's purified of tarpain and everything that's bad for you, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they will actually cook with it. Uh, and, and when you cook it, it actually looks like oil, and mm-hmm. when it 's at high temperature, and they can put a potato in it and cook it and it makes a best potato in the whole world apparently.
0: It sounds wonderful. I can just sort of because um, you know it 's a little bit similar to the sticky resins in rosemary, which we often have with roast potatoes as well. Uh-huh so I, I would love to try making rosin or resin or whatever uh, rosin <laughs> <I'm> sorry <laughs> it just sounds like such a great craft um, for fall you can
1: you can actually buy rosin online if you want. Yeah. you know it was very popular in the 1920s to actually cook
0: with to cook it. with it no kidding yeah. all right, so that 's one hopefully we'll 'll we'll remember and reclaim. Um,
1: Unless unless you want to forage for weeks and collect a little resin from trees and then boil it. It's uh, it's very smelly, by the way. It's not something you want to do inside your house.
0: Oh, really? I thought it would be like smelled wonderful. Okay. <laughs> Good it's to know.
1: overwhelming. It is absolutely <laughs> overwhelming. I saw that really? too, and my wife was not very happy the first time I did
0: it. Well, thank you for sharing that. Good to know. <laughs> uh, well, another fall one, or actually right around this time, because we have so many peppers, and I, I've, for one, have a pepper plant that is... Um, exploding right now with hot peppers. Um, you have a fermented hot sauce with wild greens that sounds really, really good. How did you come yeah. up with this recipe? Uh,
1: well, I, I do a lot of fermentation mm-hmm. uh, and because I'm a forager too, so I basically just started playing around with mixing wild greens like watercress, curly duck, all kinds of different stuff like cool. that with my, with my peppers. And uh, basically just do a regular fermentation with it and I was surprised, it's really delicious. Uh, awesome. I'm even using I'm even using insects right now. I'm planting insects with that.
0: That you insects in this hot pepper sauce or just in general? In, in the
1: hot pepper sauce, wow. but that's gonna be for the next book, not okay. this book.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. So you're writing about edible insects that you can forage? Is that Oh the next? my god, yes. Yeah. There's a lot. That's so exciting because you know, we're the you know, the protein of the future as as everyone is saying now is uh you know, insect protein which yeah. uh, it's it's very efficient, and it's healthful, and uh, it's exciting. So um, so is that your um, next project then, a cookbook about uh, wild insects?
1: No, it's going to be like yeah. another book similar to the first one, but going mm-hmm. even deeper because I've got, yes, it's endless the amount of ideas you can have.
0: Oh, endless. my goodness. So it sounds Merci like you're just cook. exploding with ideas then for using these foods.
1: Oh, the more you get into it the more you <laughs> the more you realize you know there are more stuff you can do. I think my next book's going to be about making primitive beer okay using wild plants, and then after yeah. that i 'm going to do probably the you know the 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 new uh Wildcrafted cuisine two or something like that like a yeah. book about it
0: there's so much to cover.
1: Maybe a different state too. Maybe I can go to Brooklyn and book from Brooklyn. (laughs) I
0: sincerely hope you do. I hope you do uh, some demonstrations so that um, we can all learn from and uh, uh, maybe some dinners too. I'm definitely going to them if you (laughs) do hold them. Uh, That sounds great. Um, I really. uh, This book is such an eye opening kind of uh, tome. It's and it's very substantial. So I'm gonna. It's going to take me a while to, to get into the hang of everything here, but I'm definitely looking forward to the next. And uh, uh, I guess that's about all the time we have for today, Pascal. But thank you so much for sharing. Um, and I hope everyone checks out the new Wild Crafted Cuisine, exploring the exotic gastronomy of the local terroir, just out from Chelsea Green this summer. And uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you so much.
0: Excellent. Um, I see everyone at Heritage uh, Radio Network next week.